Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Uh, Picking up where we left off last week, uh, this passage we're examining together today is very much a continuation of what we started looking at last week together. Christ's response to those who tend to look askance at the kind of people Jesus welcomes, the kind of people that Jesus welcomes to the table. Uh, In fact, if you just look at verse 1 and 2, those verses provide the backdrop really for the whole chapter. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the religious leaders of the day, the the custodians of the faith as they regarded themselves to be, they looked at Jesus and then they looked at these lowlifes who were flocking to him and they 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 just thought to themselves, well this this can't be this this cannot be the case. There was no way in their frame of thinking that these two parties, Christ and those following him, could come together. Of course, the reason for that is that in the Pharisees' frame of thinking, while their their mindset was very religious, they were very concerned with the law of God in many respects, they had little to no understanding of the grace of God. That's really what it boils down to. The reason they were so worked up over this scene is that they had a religious system that depended on merit and performance and duty, not on mercy, not on grace. And so they they just couldn't wrap their minds around what they saw happening. In fact, it made them angry. Jesus responds to that. He responds to their anger and murmuring and complaint with three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, each of them being a, a defense of the redemptive purposes of God in the lives of sinners, needy people like us. And they all echo, in some way, the statement that you, you can see in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This week is a a continuation of that theme. In fact, it's a climax of Christ's defense here. It is simultaneously the most encouraging and entreating of these three parables for wayward, lost sinners, and it's the most, most pointed in its rebuke to those who despise them or who would try to to come to God on the basis of their own merit. Let me invite you to turn your heart to the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you filled, you killed the cat fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we bow our hearts before you today. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that we have tasted and seen that you are good And it is our prayer that we would taste and see again the grace and love of our redeeming God. Lord, I pray that your spirit would minister the truth of your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the narrative in this story moves quickly. It says there was a father who had two sons. And the next thing you know, the youngest comes to him and says, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. To understand the significance of what's happening here, you've got to realize that, ordinarily speaking, you didn't come into your inheritance until your father had died. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16 establishes that. It affirms that so strongly. It says, where a will is involved, 
the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So you see what is going on in the background of this scene then. When this son comes to his father and he says, give me the share of property that's coming to me, you see what is behind that. It is roughly equivalent to the the son looking at his father in the eyes and saying, I wish you were dead. I would rather have your money than you. Astonishingly, the, the father submits, he acquiesces to the son's request, and before you know it, the son is off. He gathers his things, he goes off into a far country. Now, a far country means going off into Babylon, as it were. It means going off into the world. It means rejecting the land of the promise, the place of God's blessing, And so it's no surprise to to discover that in the span of just one verse, not only has he left home, but he has squandered everything. He squandered his property in reckless living. Friends, nothing good happens in Babylon. Nothing good happens in the world. It always ends like this. It always ends in ruin and in destruction. And we see here, that it is, it's not long before the hand of providence adds further difficulty to his trials, to the situation. Verse 14 says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Famine strikes the land. Now he is already burned through everything that he has, all of his resources, and he begins to feel himself in need. Now, this does not yet signal that there has been some kind of change of heart. It does not tell us that uh, the, the Lord has wrought a spirit of repentance within him. It, it, it doesn't tell us that anything significant spiritually is going on in the inner man, only that he no longer has the riches of his father's disposal, of his father's inheritance at his disposal. We know that because what does he do next? He begins to look at alternatives. Sometimes the Lord graciously allows the wanderer to do this, to exhaust all of their resources, all of their options, all of their alternatives that they might come to the end of themselves. This son isn't there yet. He's not in that place yet. What does he do? He gets a job feeding pigs, basically the lowest of the low. Now, just picture the contrast in in your mind. Back home, he had been in, in the, the loving environment of his father's care. He'd enjoy, enjoyed the, the wisdom and love and blessing that came with his father's oversight and protection. He had never experienced something like this before. Never once had he found himself in the position under his father's care of being in need. But now what has happened? Well, he's slumming it with the pigs He is in the very picture of uncleanness. 
As time wears on, he, he finds himself in this increasingly desperate state, more and more at the end of his rope. The job isn't enough to meet his needs. He can't pay his bills. He can't feed himself, uh, feeding the pigs. He wishes that he could eat even just the carob pods, those wild, bitter pods that the, fi- that the, that the pigs ate. The pigs are leading a better life than he is. So brothers and sisters, notice this. The thing he thought would satisfy him leaves him starving in the end. The thing he most desires, freedom, liberty, out in the world, leaves him at the end of his rope. He finds out what Proverbs 5 and verse 22 says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. That's the, the very language that the father uses later in the passage. This, my son, was dead. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. The very thing that he was convinced would satiate his desires, freedom to live in the world, freedom to live as he wants, freedom to indulge his selfish lust, it all leaves him empty. It all leaves him hopeless. How many of us have known this in our own experience? This is the way of sin. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. If you sow wind, you will reap the whirlwind. The Bible warns us of this over and over again. Now, There's a a very important transition that happens in this narrative between verses 16 and verse 17. We don't want to miss this. In verse 16, the prodigal is struck with this longing to be fed uh, with the pods that the pigs ate. You find there in him this certain awareness of the place that his sin has brought him. There is a certain kind of despondency. There's a certain kind of... Of, of sorrow uh, that he is feeling, but it's not a godly sorrow. It was not yet a repentant sorrow. It wasn't the kind of sorrow that brought with it humility. Uh, the, 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 the spirit with which he could go and, and, and return to his father and face the ones that he had sinned against. He, there in verse 16, is still content to live in the squalor of his sin and the consequences that come with it. It's not until you get to verse 17 that the crucial words come. But when he came to himself. What do those words mean? Look at the text with me. It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? The first thing he recalls, not to be missed is the goodness of his father. The goodness of his father. He calls to mind the bounty of his father's house, the abundance of his dad's provision, the blessings that pour forth from the hand of his father. They have more than enough bread, even the servants. But I perish 
with hunger. You see the contrast. You see the, the, the folly of his ways. He, he marks the distinction in his mind, and he begins to grasp the sad reality of that. The pursuit of my sinful desires has not materialized in the kind of life that I thought it would. My heart has deceived me. Not only has my selfish living not resulted in the kind of life that I wanted, but I now realize that the place of blessing is actually in the place I left behind. It's, it's with my father. It's in the home that I deserted. And so what does he do? He formulates a plan. He says, well, I will arise and I, go, I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He thinks to himself, there's, there's no sense trying to cover over things here. There's no sense trying to, to hide my sin. I'm, I'm just going to go and confess it. I'm just going to go and confess it fully and freely without any kind of excuses or, or qualifications here. He acknowledges that he has sinned first and foremost, against heaven. He says what David says in Psalm 51, against you, you only God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words. And then secondly, he acknowledges that he has sinned against his natural father. Father, I sinned against you. Full stop. No justifications, no attempts at, well, let me explain myself. There's nothing that, that smacks of, well, I, I did this because you did this. I was hurt in this kind of way. No equivocations or rationalizations, just I've sinned before you. He owns it all before his father. And then in verse 19, he acknowledges the terrible breach that his sin has resulted or that his sin is brought to the relationship between him and his father. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, church, I, I, I think that it is worth drawing attention to the fact that the son knows the character of his father well enough here to have the hope that he will be met with at least some measure of mercy when he returns. If you look at just verses 17 and 18, while that son is still yet in the far country, he never stops using the word father. He never st stops uttering that in his mind, in that internal dialogue. The word shows up repeatedly. How many of my father's servants. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to my father, the nature of that relationship and all that is bound up in it is still in the picture here. I don't think the son would have ever been inclined to return home to his father, to ever even consider this whole plan had he not known the character of the one to whom he planned to return. I draw this out simply to say, may we with God's help mirror that spirit of love 
and readiness to welcome those who may be estranged from us, even on account of their own sin, even if it's their own sin that may have caused it. You have here both the heart of the Father and the hope of the Son. They're both there. The Son makes his settled determination, and he arises, and he begins to make his way back home. Now, if you are someone who is perhaps a new Christian, or you're unfamiliar with this story, on a first reading, this all gets us thinking about how or even if uh, this son will be received when he returns home. You know the son had to be wondering about that as, as he thought about what kind of response he would get. Bear in mind that when we're talking about the kind of inheritance that he would have received, uh, that sort of thing didn't come from the, the sort of holdings and inheritance we typically have in mind today, uh, stocks and bonds and savings accounts and life insurance. In this state, it would have been land. It would have been livestock, that sort of thing. And so when the son came in the first place and he made that demand of his father, the father would have had to divest himself of those things to his own hurt. So the son has to be thinking at this point, what kind of reception will I get? Will I be turned away? If I am allowed back home, on what kind of terms will it be? Will it be said, I told you so? You should have listened to me in the first place. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son isn't left wondering for long. The father takes off and he runs toward him. Everyone in this culture knows that A man who was distinguished in any kind of way didn't run anywhere. It's just not proper. One scribe who was living around this time said, a man's manner of walking tells you what he is. Aristotle said, great men never run in public. One missionary to the Middle East who is still alive today, he tells the story of a pastor friend who uh, he wasn't accepted as the pastor of a particular church in the Middle East because in the judgment of the elders, he walked down the street too fast. But not this man, not this father. He ran. Literally, it says that he ran and he fell on the neck of his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. It was unconventional, it was undignified, but it was highly warranted. It is Malachi 3 and verse 17 in parabolic form. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Or James chapter 4 and verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. Dear ones, return to the Lord and rest assured you'll be received. 
he will return to you. There are a, a couple things here that make this scene just especially striking. First of all, the son's return to the father is almost completely overshadowed, you could say, by the father's love. The son must make the about face. The son must make the choice to leave his sin and his selfish living behind and return to the father. But that's not the highlight of this story. The highlight of this story is not the son's long journey home. Luke does not take a long lot of time tracing each step of the son's trod home. The thing that takes center stage here is not the prodigal's return, but the father's compassion and joy. That is what is underscored in this passage. And that is amplified even further just by the extravagance of his welcome. The son begins to to let out those lines that he has rehearsed internally. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You notice, though, what happens here? Did you catch the difference between what he's rehearsed internally and what he, he lets out of, of his mouth? He doesn't have time to finish those words that he has prepared. He has practiced his lines, but he never gets to the point where he says, treat me as one of your hired servants. Why? The father interrupts him. The father has already seen the heart of the child. The son has already arisen. The trajectory of the son's life has already changed. It will not do to treat the son as a hireling, what does he do? Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Almost certainly this would have been the father's robe. The father's robe that was wrapped around him. And put a ring on his hand. Quite possibly this could have been a signet ring. A sign that he was received fully back into the family. Put shoes on his feet. Slaves didn't wear shoes. Only sons. He's Back in the family, he's been received. So over the prodigal's poverty and shame and dishonor, the father covers him with the regalia and the splendor of his office and honor. Are you beginning to see the picture here? You see the the redeeming love of God displayed for us in this scene. There is no, here's what you need to do to make amends. There's no, here's how you can prove yourself. Here is how you can win my love. Instead, it's just bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. My son's home. My son has returned. You see the reversal. The son has brought public shame and humiliation to the father. Now what does the father do? He publicly honors the son. He says, spare no expense. He may have wasted it all. He may have brought shame and disrepute to the father, but he is still this son of mine. He's still my son. He speaks in terms of resurrection. He says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Beloved, this is a picture of the gospel. This is a a picture of the gospel. 
in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see how this episode magnifies the grace of God exemplified in this Father's love, a mercy that triumphs over judgment. It tells us of a kind of love that can pardon any kind of sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how wicked you have been. The prodigal comes with nothing to offer, nothing by which he can say he's earned his way back home. He comes with empty hands, holding only to the hope of his father's mercy and compassion. Isn't that our hope, dear ones? Isn't that our hope, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? And that's exactly what this son discovers when he comes back home. Grace sufficient and more than sufficient to bring him near. Grace greater than all our sin. Do you know that grace? Do you know this love of God beyond all comprehension that brings sinners to himself? Now, up until now, we have heard nothing from the elder brother. Verse 25 brings him back into the picture. This story is not just about the prodigal son. In fact, you could make the case that this story has more to do with the elder brother than it does the prodigal son. Most people have looked at this particular parable and they focus their attention on the the prodigal son and you can see why there are many lessons there, but you can make the argument that the prodigal is there really to provide the fodder or the background for the father's conversation with the elder brother who in this episode represents the Pharisees. And the scribes, those ones who have murmured and complained about Christ, they're the ones Jesus, you remember, has been addressing this whole time. That's the surprise ending of this parable. There's more than one lost son in the story. That's why you can't stop reading at the end of verse 24. There are two lost sons who are alienated from their father, though in different ways. The elder son also, though, is estranged. He's separate. He may be at home physically speaking. He may be the model child in in, in many respects, but he's still separated relationally from the father, as the text goes on to show us. Look at verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. A great celebration has commenced. It's another picture of all the the rejoicing and jubilation over repentant sinners, this chorus we keep hearing over and over again. The calf is on the fire, The village is all gathered together and that elder brother hears the music and he he hears the dancing and he wonders what in the world is going on. 
just come in from the field. And so he calls over one of the, the servants. He asks about it. That servant says this, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. You see the parallel with the Pharisees and scribes. Just like the Pharisees who grumbled that Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners, he eats with them. The elder brother is indignant that his father would have the gall not just to let his brother back in, but to throw a party over it. Remember Jesus' words, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Christ is now giving those righteous persons, self-righteous persons, those Pharisees and scribes, those religious people, in the figure of this elder brother, a mirror in which they are now meant to see themselves. The elder brother is angry. He's grumbling. He will not come into the party. And so the father goes out. His father came out and entreated him. He pleads with his son. How does the son respond? But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. He lays out a case for the father. And what do you see there? Again, he's operating on the merit system. He is adding things up in his mind. He's telling himself, And he's telling his father, I'm responsible. I am a rule follower. I've worked hard. I've always tried to do what is right. And he can't figure out why things have gone the way that they've gone. Have you ever found yourself thinking in those kinds of terms? Come on, be honest with yourself. He says here, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. How can you possibly reconcile these kinds of things? What explains the son's confusion? In short, he cannot understand the grace of God. He cannot understand grace. The extravagance of the Father's mercy is beyond his comprehension, especially in light of his supposed deservedness. If the younger brother comes to the father saying, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, the older brother comes saying, I am the worthy one here. In fact, he says, I've been shortchanged. I've been gypped. I'm the one with the rights. I'm the one that should have gotten the robe and the ring and the fatted calf. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of fairness in his mind. I'm the one who's earned the blessing. I deserve it. Give it to me. He's like many in the church today who who view the Christian life as a series of checkboxes. A series of things that have to be accomplished, and as long as those things are done, as long as you've achieved those things, as long as your behavior has been appropriately modified, nothing else needs to be said. But you see what is absent in that way of thinking. 
It's a relationship. It's love. It's joy. It's humility. It's grace. I wonder if you you can see the the seedbed of the elder brother's error in your own heart as well. It's so easy to slip into this way of thinking, even as regenerate men and women. This parable is not primarily directed to the profligate or to the rebel. It's not directed mainly to the liberal or to the licentious. It is directed to people like you and me. It's directed to churchgoers, to the religious, to the orthodox, to people who regard themselves to be conservatives, Bible-believing people, pious people, people who know the word of God. It says to people like us, remember, Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners. Question number one, have you forgotten that's what you are? Question number two, will you receive them too? Will you receive them? You notice how when when this elder brother makes the protest to his father, he calls the younger brother, this son of yours. He chooses words so that he can distance himself from his own brother. When the father, though, speaks to the elder brother, he calls him this brother of yours. This brother. Without saying it, he enjoins the elder brother to soften his heart. Soften your heart toward the repentant sinner. If the elder brother really is the father's son, he will welcome those the father welcomes. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 puts it this way, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We saw how the father responded so clearly to the prodigal. How does he respond to the ungrateful elder brother? Look at verse 31, if you will. It says there, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see the father's tenderness even to the elder brother? He leaves the celebration, he leaves the party the feasting and the dancing, and he goes out to entreat the self-righteous. He says to him, nothing has been withheld from you. He welcomes the wayward and he pleads with the Pharisee. Both are invited to the feast. He tells him, son, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The repentance of sinners is grounds for celebration. It is cause for rejoicing. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Can't you see this? Won't you join in? The story here is left open-ended. It's left with the self-righteous Pharisee standing outside the door and the penitent sinner seated at the table. We don't know how the elder brother 
responded, which gives us an opportunity to insert ourselves in the story and ask, will we welcome those that the Father has welcomed? Will we leave both our our scandalous sins and the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness behind and trust in the grace of God alone? That's the question that's presented to us in this text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you. Lord, we are so thankful for the grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, thank you for your mercy and compassion, for your redeeming love toward those who find themselves in need. Lord, for those who reek of the filth of this world and come to you in the from the, the, the pigsty of prodigal living, we praise you. God, we praise you that your grace is greater than all of our sin. Lord, for those of us that come from the, the pretense of self-righteousness that also has to be left behind, thank you for your compassion. Lord, we are thankful that we serve a, a merciful, gracious God one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I thank you for your word. I I thank you that uh, you are so kind and patient in the way that you work in our hearts. Lord, thank you for drawing near those who might be warned away by the depth of their sin. Thank you also, Lord, for for warning those of us who are convinced that we have no sin or who do not see ourselves as we ought. God, we are grateful for the gospel. I pray that you would convict our hearts of the sin that so easily entangles. Forgive us, Lord, set us free. Soften our hearts, God, toward those who are far from you. I pray that what we have heard today would engender in us a kind and compassionate spirit just as we have seen in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.